Well, if you would, turn into Acts chapter 20, please. Acts chapter 20. I'm sure you remember the scene. Those seven children of the Navy commander, Captain George Von Trapp, <laughs> right? Heading off to bed as they're stating the following words to those who are attending their father's party. So long, farewell, Alvider Zane, good night. I hate to go and leave this pretty sight. I'd sing it, but you'll be thankful I didn't. Right? <laughs> Parting words can be extremely heartwarming, can't they? And in the book of Acts, we have another farewell. No, it doesn't have a group of adorable children making their way up a staircase. But what we do find is this scene that's moving nonetheless of Paul. And it starts in verse 13. And let's look at this. Let me maybe set the scene for you. Paul is completing his third missionary journey. And as he's making his way back to Jerusalem, you say, why back to Jerusalem? Because Paul had two prongs to his ministry. One is obviously the gospel. The second was to provide financial support for needy saints, needy believers back in Israel. And so he had this collection that he was gathering, and he wanted to get back. The text is going to tell us before the Jewish holiday of Pentecost. So he's trying to make his way as fast as he can back to Jerusalem. And, and so we have this journey, this uh, kind of a laundry list of names, which is very typical of historical writings in the first century. And let's just look at this. It says, uh, verse 13 is where we're going to begin. It says, we, and this is Dr. Luke speaking, he is with the entourage, traveling with Paul. He says, we went on ahead of the ship and put out to sea for Assos, intending to take Paul abroad there, for he had arranged it in this way. But he himself was attending to go there by land. This is about oh, 17 to 20 miles by foot. I think, who knows, Paul is an extrovert, but he probably has had his fill of people, I don't know, uh, maybe needing some time just to regroup and reflect on what lies ahead for him. We, we just don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But when he met us in Assos, we took him aboard and went to Mytilene. We set sail from there, and on the following day, we arrived at Chios. This is where Homer was born, for you historians. And the next day, we approached Samos, and the day after that, we arrived at Miletus. Again, it's, it's this laundry list of names, a name-dropping itinerary, and again, that's very typical. I, I wish we had time to trace it on a map and talk about the historical significance of these sites, but let's move. Verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail, just pa sail past Ephesus so as not to spend time in the province of Asia, for he was hurrying to arrive in Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost, the text tells us. From Miletus, he sent a message to Ephesus telling the elders of the church to come to him. When they arrived, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I set foot in the province of Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with the trials that happened to me because of the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not hold back from proclaiming to you anything that would be helpful and from teaching you publicly and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem without knowing what will happen to me there. Uh, he is 
stated elsewhere, for instance, in the end of Romans, that the Holy Spirit is, is taking him to Jerusalem and that he's going to suffer. So he knows that much. And he said, except that the Holy Spirit warns me in town after town that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting. But I do not consider my life worth anything to myself so that I might finish my task and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. I want to look at this text, and, and, and there's more to Paul's farewell address that we could look at, but I want to focus on just the first seven verses of his farewell address. I want you to jump back to the first part where he calls for the elders. And one of the first questions you ask is, why didn't Paul just stop at Ephesus? Right? That's the mothership of Asia Minor. You spent three years there, Paul. I mean, you know, you've shot hoop with these guys. Right? You've been to Starbucks. You've hung out together in the Agora. Why wouldn't you go there? And there's, there is a little bit of a hint of this in verse 16 when we're told he's in a hurry. But uh, to give you a bit of a historical background, Ephesus indeed had the largest harbor in the region, but it was congested. And any ship that went into that harbor had to figure they were probably going to be there for several days. And Paul is type A. He is not going to wait, right? <laughs> He's way off the Myers-Briggs ESTJ, uh, whatever. I don't know. My wife can tell you about that, right? <laughs> so he is in a hurry. Secondly, in this culture, uh, there is an obligation uh, of hospitality. And there's an obligation as the guest as well to give them time. Paul, as we said, Paul spent a lot of time here. He knows many and if he were to go, he would have been expected to stay days, if not weeks, entertaining and socializing. He doesn't have that luxury. I, I remember when we would go up north to visit my grandparents, my mom and dad, uh, Cedric Hans. There you go. How's that one? Hans and Hoffeditz. I'm cursed. So um, when we would go visit them, you know, we had to go see my Aunt Reva, my Aunt Claire, my Aunt Mabel, my Uncle Steve. You know, it was, it was a whole day event. And you can imagine in this culture all the more so. And Paul, Paul does not have that luxury. Now, the question we would ask if we looked at a map is, why didn't you meet the elders at Assos or Samos? Samos would be even better. It's, it's halfway between Miletus and Ephesus. Instead, you drag them 30-some miles from these elders from Ephesus all the way down to Miletus. Why, why are you doing this, Paul? And, and, and obviously, I think there's convenience on the sake of Paul, we also know that Miletus has four harbors. It's quick to get in and out. And so that's another reason why I think we're, we've selected Miletus. But for those of us who aren't as interested in geography, let's go back to the text and, and let's look at something else that should raise an immediate question as we look at this. Uh, first of all, these elders have dropped everything to come, haven't they? They've got businesses. They've got things that they're doing. And it indicates the great devotion and commitment they have to Paul. They undoubtedly have heard that Paul knows that in Jerusalem, he's probably going to be arrested. And it could be his last, right? And, and, and this is a moving scene. If you don't, look, look at the end of it, uh, end of this chapter. Look at verses 36, uh, 37, 38. When he had said all these things, he knelt down with them all and prayed. They all began to weep loudly. Uh, that is the same phrase used when Stephen is, is stoned. 
Weeping loudly was an indication of innocence and great devotion. And they hugged Paul and kissed him. This was before COVID. Uh, especially saddened <laughs> by what he had said, right? You, you, you see this great commitment to their leader. They owe much to Paul, right? Remember the scenes that, that we read of in Ephesus, and you can look at that. But what is more astounding to me is not where we're meeting, but what is stated. Look at verse 18. When they arrived, what does Paul say? Thank you for making this long trek. I really appreciate it. Thank you for how well you're keep taking care of the church at Ephesus. There's none of that. The only thing that Luke records of Paul stating, it's all about himself. Right? Notice what Paul says. You yourselves know how I live the whole... You know this, and I was with you from the first day. Uh, and in fact, what Paul is going to be stating is, you're to emulate my life, which sounds a little bit narcissistic, <laughs> to say the least, doesn't it? Paul is not... This isn't the first time Philippians, he states in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, be imitators of me. It's a bold statement as he gives these parting words of all the things to, to, to mention to them. He says, look at my life. Look how I've taken... And you know, you were with me. He says that. You, you were there. You understood. You saw me teach, etc. You, you've hung out with me. This idea is not that he is speaking out of arrogance. Because as we look at Philippians, when he talks about imitating me, Paul is directing our attention ultimately to Christ. It's Christ who serves as the ultimate role model for Paul. And he's expecting this domino effect, right? That you will imitate me as I've imitated Christ and, and so forth. And, and Paul has clearly not reached perfection. Elsewhere, he says, hey, I'm not perfect. I'm striving to walk in obedience. I'm striving to, to move in self-denial. And Paul has referred to other leaders in the church to emulate Epaphroditus, right? Sounds like a disease. Paul's life is to serve as a great contrast to those who have tarnished the gospel. And so he says to this church, you are to follow me. You, you know me well. Which is amazing that there's no one saying, well, now wait a minute, Paul. You, you kind of lost it at that Starbucks that one day with the teller. <laughs> or, or no, I, I was with you and I saw you dip your hand in the cookie jar and take some money for yourself. No, none of that. I, I don't know about you. Could you say to those closest to you to emulate me? <laughs> or would there be a few sneers and laughters? You're kidding, right? Or would individuals see Christ and recognize that that, that is the ultimate model there to follow as they emulate you? That's what Paul's saying. Three missionary journeys. He's had a lot of opportunities to blow it. He's had sleepless nights. He's been beaten. The list goes on, right? He says, no, follow me. And in this address, in these first seven verses, there are three key ingredients that I, I see for the church, uh, individually in ministry as well as corporately as a, as a ministry. And, and these are the three that I want to tease out for us this morning. The first of these is an effective ministry entails sacrificial service. This is the great Apostle Paul, right? And look what he says in verse 19, I serve the Lord with all humility. 
and with tears, which is an indication of sincerity. I've done this with sincerity. In fact, he even mentions, I was in the midst of the afflictions I served you. There is nothing more detrimental, I would argue, to ministry than self-confidence and pride. It is the danger, it is the cancer that eats the ch- and eat within the church very quickly. I call it the Martha syndrome. <laughs> Remember the story of Mary and Martha? Martha was busy in the kitchen serving. And she was concerned about the chaos in the kitchen, but the creator of the universe was reclining in her living room. And typical of siblings, she's highlighting all that she's doing and highlighting all that Mary's not doing, right? And, and she wanted a little recognition, and she lost sight of the Lord. And, and we, we have to be careful. I wrote, we are to stay under the Word and behind the cross, right? Under the Word, that's what I always told my students going on to seminary, you are not above this. Be very careful. You're under the Word, and you're behind the cross, John said it, right? John the Baptist. He, Christ, must increase, I must decrease. And Paul is saying to these elders at Ephesus, as I'm handing this baton to you, as I'm encouraging you to to take charge, an effective ministry entails sacrificial service. You want an effective ministry? Howard Hendricks used to always say this. It has a very high price tag, but it's worth every penny. (laughs) An effective ministry also, as we look at Paul's words is unashamed of the gospel. He, he tells us, I shared the good news. He said, I, I didn't hold back, right? I did this even publicly for fear I could have been imprisoned. It didn't stop me. I was open about my sharing of the gospel. I was clear and I was consistent. And, and notice what the message entails, verse 21. He says, I was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, and here it is, about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Grammatically, those two terms are attached in the original language. One scholar writes, Paul is stating that the repentance to God represents a change of direction in how one relates to God. Repentance is an understanding, I'm a louse (laughs) before God Almighty. There's nothing I can do, right? And that's the idea here. It entails faith in Jesus so that the turning results in one placing trust in what God did through Jesus as one embraces his person and his work. The gospel is very clear. Christ came, he died on a cross for our sins, he rose from the dead, and it calls for us to ask for repentance of sin, understanding that, that Lord, we need you. And again, if you haven't done that this morning, I... Do it. Today's the day. In fact, there will be some folks standing in the back. Uh, You can catch them afterwards. They'd love to pray with you. Or you can catch me afterwards, and I'd love to pray with you and talk through what is this good news? What is this hope that we have? How can someone like Paul say all this? Because he understands of the gospel. For those of us who are in Christ, the gospel must be preeminent, right? I was thinking... Imagine if the gospel was shaping our culture right now like this pandemic. I mean, think about it. Our lives revolve around COVID-19, right? Whether it's trying to get transcripts for school or toilet paper at the grocery store. I don't know. You fill in the blank. 
Imagine if that was the gospel that shaped all that we do. Nothing can stand with the gospel. It must be preeminent. Nothing can overshadow the gospel. It must be preeminent. Nothing can replace the gospel. It must be preeminent. No matter the social, political, or personal issues, the gospel must be preeminent within our lives. Amen? That's right. That's the whole book of Acts. Turn to the end of this book. It's kind of a Debbie Downer at first. I mean, where do you end? Paul's in prison? I mean, way to go, Luke. You're writing this two-volume work to talk about how wonderful Christianity is, and the leader of one of the pack is in prison. It's not how I would have ended this little work. But look how what Luke records there at the end of Acts, verse 30 of chapter 28. Paul lived there two whole years in his own rented quarters. He's under house arrest. He welcomed all who came to him, and here it is proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with complete boldness and without restriction. Luke Acts is not about us. It's about the gospel going forth. And and at times the church didn't get it, so he had to turn up the heat. In fact, remember Jesus said, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts? To get to uh, Judea and Samaria, we had to have persecution in Jerusalem. To get to the next stage, which is the uttermost parts, he had to turn up the heat again. And maybe COVID is doing that for us. I don't know. And moving us forward so that the gospel could go forth. And that's the whole point of this book. And so you want an effective ministry? Number one, it has to have a sacrificial service. It must not be ashamed of the gospel. You cannot cower in a corner. Oh, I hope they see Jesus. No. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And finally, an effective ministry has an eternal focus. Look what Paul states here in the latter part of this little section that we're looking at. Uh, Verse 24, I do not consider my life worth anything to myself. And there's another rendering, I count it all loss. Now think about Paul for a minute. You may not know his background, but let me give you fill in the blanks. This guy was born on the right side of the tracks. He was born in a very affluent devout Jewish family. They knew their lineage. He said, I'm a Benjaminite. (laughs) I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Even though my family lived elsewhere outside of of Israel, we observed all that was of the traditions. Not only that, he's a Roman citizen. That is unheard of even for the Greeks, the Gentiles in the first century. It was very rare. And Paul inherited his, his Roman citizenship. means his daddy had it as well. That's very most Jews didn't have it. And if, if you don't think that's big, look at the whole scene at Philippi. Remember that? The magistrates are kiss, kissing his sandals, not literally, but almost. Oh, we're so sorry. We're so sorry. Because they had beaten him without a trial, which was forbidden for a Roman citizen. He studied in Jerusalem. He studied with the best, the Harvard, the Princeton's, Oxford of the day, right? And, and I think you could make a strong case that in time, Paul would have had a member, a seat among a, a member of the Sanhedrin, the most powerful Jewish ruling body in Israel. There was only 70 seats, and they only got one when someone croaked, and he would have easily been groomed for it because he said, I was the best of the best. And Paul says, I count that all loss for the cause of Christ. Wow. Why? 
because his focus is not on the immediate. It is on what lies ahead, right? The eternal view that, and keeping that is what untangles us from our ties in this world. We hold it loosely. One individual who said, I'll cover the meeting here at the 502 for a while. I said, are you serious? He said, oh yeah. He said, I'm just a conduit. Everything I have belongs to the Lord anyways. So allow me. Uh, this is what Paul's saying. I, I, it, it doesn't, can you imagine if he'd, uh, if he'd become distracted by the immediate? Uh, he would have been emotionally paralyzed from the prospect, I would think, of another persecution or imprisonment. You've got to be kidding. I mean, if I was Paul, I said, I have done my time. Thank you very much. We're done here. <laughs> Love Jesus. Be with you. God be with you. I'm done. No. As we attempt to navigate in the midst of this chaotic world we live in, which appears to be spiraling out of control, you know, it's so easy to lose sight of the gospel and what is internally important. How are you faring spiritually? Glad you're here this morning. I'm preaching to the choir. But has your faith been weakened by unwatchfulness or by due diligence? Are you growing near to God in prayer or have you given way to idleness? It's easy just to turn on the tube. You're trapped in the four walls anyways, right? Are you making the most of your precious time as far as you have life, strength, and opportunity? Is your life and conversation adorned with the gospel of Jesus Christ? One of my favorite authors, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may know the name. I had the privilege of studying at Tubingen for a year of my doctorate. And he studied at Tubingen. I always hoped that I had sat in one of the chairs that he sat in. I, in fact, I moved around in all the rooms and kind of shuffled. <laughs> they didn't need to clean the chairs. I did it for him. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who spoke out against the Nazi regime. He was killed one month before World War II ended in the European front. He wrote a little book. If you've not read it, you must. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. Listen to what he writes. To deny oneself, and by the way, Bonhoeffer was in London. He had escaped. And Karl Barth wrote to him and said, what are you doing? You're the shepherd of the flock. Get back to Germany, knowing full well what lied ahead. He said, deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self, to see only him who goes before and more the road which is too hard for us, no more the road for which is too hard for us. All that self-denial can say is, he leads the way, keep close to him. Christ said, you want to follow me, you deny yourself, you take up your cross. And in these parting words... In this beautiful scene here with these elders from the church at Ephesus, Paul says, listen, God's calling me this way. I don't know what lies ahead. It's not pretty, humanly speaking, but this is where God has called me. But you need to persevere. You need an effective ministry, and that's going to call for sacrificial service. It's going to call for an unashamed standing of the gospel. You cannot waver. And it calls for an eternal focus. This world is not our home. 
We need individuals. We need churches all the more across this land like Community Bible Fellowship who are willing to echo Paul's words to carry the torch, right? May we count it all lost for the cause of Christ. May all that this world has we hold loosely as we look to our Savior. And just think, there'll be a day, there'll be no more masks <laughs> as we join hands, no doubt, in praising our Savior. Father, what a powerful scene nestled in Acts. The great stalwart of the faith, Paul, the mighty apostle, meeting with these elders from Ephesus, and he says, I, I count it all loss. He says, look at me. He says, you want, you want an effective ministry? Then you're going to have to serve sacrificially. You're going to have to hone in on the gospel. It must be central. And we need an eternal focus. Lord, that's the prayer for us as we launch this new ministry. It is our desire that Christ be exalted. Lord, give us Jesus. You can have all that's in this world. Just give us him. And it's his name we pray. Amen.